Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Read Aloud. Thank you for coming in to join us on such a sunny day. Um, we've got a wonderful Earth Day program for you. Um, we've got members of a local organization called Simply Living who have a variety of readings that they're going to share with us. Um, Ellen Baumgartner, Becky Allen, and Chuck Lind are going to be reading. So um, we do have refreshments. Help yourself and um, sit back and enjoy the readings. Thanks for coming out. I'm Ellen Baumgartner, and I'm going to read um, a couple of selections from a discussion course book on voluntary simplicity that Simply Living offers. This one is entitled, When Enough is Enough, and it's by F. Marina Schaffler. The crows in our neighborhood live for Wednesdays. Since the town mandated that trash be collected in labeled plastic bags, few people use garbage cans. Mid by morning and Wednesdays, the crows have gone from house to house like trick-or-treaters, digging into bags and pulling out goodies. Their garbage vest leaves a flurry of plastic wrap and paper towels strewn across driveways and yards. The crows are unrepentant. Like our own species, they are shrewd opportunists. They want their food rich, fast, and cheap. No sense hunting and foraging in the woods when the neighborhood provides compost pile franchises and trash bag outlets. Even as I collect tissues and wrappers from the front lawn, I can't begrudge the crows their indulgence. I admire their confidence and cunning. Yet, among my own kind, I find this talent for consumption markedly less endearing. What is the difference? Why does the crow's behavior seem innocuous, even admirable, while human, human gluttony sparks condemnation? The double standard could be taken as evidence of a misanthropic impulse or a vestigial puritanism quick to decry wanton decadence. But the issue is more basic than that. Where the crows excel and we stumble is in knowing the value of humans. The crows are resourceful at, at finding food, but they don't take more than they need. They know instinctively when enough is enough. For all our sophistication in modern culture, we have lost this basic intuition. We've grown so adept at consumption, we have trouble distinguishing genuine need from spurious desires. A counterbalance to consumption lies in the more than human world. Outdoors in the unpaved places, the static of commercial culture fades. In the quiet that follows comes a sense that could never be bought. It can't even be fairly described. Each morning upon arising, I go to where a windblown oak stands. Its stone gray trunk splays into a disheveled tangle of half-dead branches. Resting a shoulder on rutted bark, I let my senses waken. Lichen forms a pastel green collage on the trunk. Buds like water droplets mark nearby birch boughs. A spatter of snow stirs oak leaves. From a dark expanse of pines comes the throaty gargle of raven. Here the threads that hold together the whole are palpable. Oak, birch, raven, human, lichen, each part of a kaleidoscope turned faithfully by sun and moon. The mesmerizing patterns of shifting light, wind, and weather. The order in chaos. The mystery of the mundane. In this place and this moment, enough is enough. To sense this elemental kinship is to know grace. To hold it within and live by it is to know discipline. The delight of kinship carries with it a demand. Being reminded each morning of all we belong to, I cannot live a disconnected life. The choice to honor ecological ties does not stem from moral duty or a concern for the rights of other species. The underlying ethic is not derived from Kantian imperatives 
Aristotelian virtues, or utilitarian calculations. It is an ethic born of care. It comes from knowing other species, not as taxonomic types, but as individuals and communities. This focus time and attention. A practice of ecological kinship can be likened to the Buddhist concept of mindfulness, which counsels us to be fully present, attentive to where we are and what we are doing. Our attention to the natural world yields unexpected gifts, moments of beauty and symmetry that nourish our deepest hungers. Yet the same attention brings anguish as we see how our actions rend the fabric of life. The torn shards lie all about. A cancerous sun burns down, its shield dissolved by our automotive alchemy. The spring grows silent as warblers decline, evicted from their habitat in both hemispheres. And along our highways lie the crushed and crumpled bodies of countless creatures we call roadkills. What do their deaths say about our lives? To dwell with open eyes and open heart in the midst of ecological devastation is a spiritual discipline. Each instance of destruction in the larger world calls us back to our own practice. The size of our ecological weight daily choices we make, what we buy, what we eat, what we drive, and how much we buy, how much we eat, how much we drive. For each of us, the choices will differ, and they will change over time. We can never eliminate our wake, only minimize it through conscientious practice. As my sense of ecological kinship grows, my choices gradually change. I find myself traveling less by car and more by bike, choosing organic food, and I would add local food, and second-hand clothing, shopping less and savoring more time outdoors. I have decided not to upgrade either my 10-year-old computer or 10-year-old car. My television of the same vintage was given away years ago. By avoiding commercial radio and publications, I found one can elude many of the 1,500 advertising images aimed at us daily. These choices carry no sense of deprivation. In fact, each affirms the value of sufficiency over surfeit. My life is less cluttered by gadgetry that demands maintenance, styles that go out of fashion, and time savers that devour more time than they free. Even my perception of time is changing. It no longer seems like a scarce commodity to be rationed. Time has become more fluid and cyclical, a pattern at once reassuring and mysterious. There is enough time now to dwell in timeless moments. When saffron light floods the room at sunset, cadence blooms of Christmas cactus emerge. When a letter from a friend arrives, carrying stories of a faraway life. The more I glimpse the full breadth of living time can hold, the harder it gets to return to conventional measures, days dictated by timesheets and overtime. Eco-psychologist Robert Greenway encountered a similar response when he led groups of corporate employees on wilderness trips. The employees loved the expeditions. The firms did not. Greenway was told, the trips would have to end. The firm, um, after their wilderness stay, too many employees had returned to work only long enough to give notice. Greenway's story confirms that even a brief immersion in the natural world can reshuffle our priorities. A sustained commitment to honor the whole of nature can recast the form of our lives. That commitment may grow slowly sprouting from the rich compost of experience deep within us, or it may strike with sudden grace an epiphany that breaks through the surface of our lives. Okay. And I have another one shorter. This one, the author is anonymous, but it's titled Mexican Fisherman. An American businessman was at the pier of a small coastal Mexican village. 
when a small boat with just one fisherman ducked. Inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. The American complimented the Mexican on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took to catch them. The Mexican replied, only a little while. The American then asked, why didn't you stay out longer and catch more fish? The Mexican said he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. The American then asked, but what do you do with the rest of your time? The Mexican fisherman said, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take siesta with my wife, Maria, and stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my amigos. I have a full and busy life, senor. The American scoffed. I am a Harvard MBA, and I could help you. You should spend more time fishing, and with the proceeds, buy a bigger boat. With the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually, you would have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you would sell directly to the processor, eventually opening your own cannery. You would control the product, processing, and distribution. You could leave this small coasting fishing village and move to Mexico City, then LA, and eventually New York City, where you would run your expanding enterprise. The Mexican fisherman asked, but senor, how long will all this take? 15 to 20 years was the reply. But what then, senor? The American laughed and said, oh, that's the best part. When the time is right, you would announce an IPO and sell your company stock to the public and become very rich, you would make millions. Millions, senor? Then what? Triumphantly, the American replied, then you would retire. You'd move to a small coastal fishing village where you would sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take siesta with your wife, stroll to the village in the evening where you could sip wine and play guitar with your amigos. I have just um, two brief things from this little book called Earth Prayers. Uh, these Earth Prayers from around the world, and they have different uh, sections in them. And this is just the introduction to the section on healing, healing the whole. <laughs> I'm just going to be part of it. During this time of great imbalance on planet Earth, we may feel ourselves torn between the priorities of healing ourselves, resolving our own inner spiritual or psychological problems, and attempting to cure the social and economic ills that beset our culture. While each of us undoubtedly has much inner work to do, this attitude misses the main point of Earth Prayer. It continues to view the individual as somehow separate from the rest of the world. But if we accept that we are totally part of this living earth, then we must recognize that isolated health is an illusion. Healing ourselves and working to resolve the contradictions in the human earth ecology is the same work. All healing involves making whole again, resolving the contradictions that exist between self and other, body and spirit, mind and nature. And the last one, I'm going to read is um, a little short one by M.J. Slim Hui. I don't know who he is. I have come to terms with the future. From this day onward, I will walk easy on the earth, plant trees, kill no living things, live in harmony with all creatures. I will restore the earth where I am, use no more of its resources than I need, and listen. Listen to what it is telling me. My name is uh, Becky Allen, and I'm going to read some selections um, from a variety of people. Um, 
about our relationship with the natural world. I've got some um, shorter selections from a scientist, a theologian, a philosopher, a poet, a Native American chief, and a contemporary spiritual teacher. But just a few words before I share those with you, um, I wanted to explain that our, our current relationship with the natural world in the Western culture is one of separation and alienation. Uh, that we tend to see nature as real estate, um, as something to drive our golf carts over and spread our shopping centers across and our highways, um, as a resource for our benefit. We tend to see trees as lumber and paper, um, a mountain as a ski slope, perhaps the ocean as a place to deposit our garbage. So we have very much a commercial relationship with nature in our culture, allowing us to plunder uh, our world and destroy its natural beauty. The selections I've chosen will, I hope, renew in you a sense of the deeply sacred relationship that we have with the natural world, a sense of awe um, in the presence of its mystery and beauty. And so I'm going to begin, actually, um, with Albert Einstein. A little closer? Okay. Here I thought I was being really loud. <laughs> okay. Okay. Albert Einstein had a, um, a vision of the beauty and mystery of the universe, certainly in his research about its vastness and expansiveness. He says this about our alienation from the natural world. A human being is part of a whole called by us in the universe, a part limited in time and space. He experiences himself, his thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of his consciousness this delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. He goes on to say, in another passage, people like you and I, though mortal, of course, like everyone else, do not grow old, no matter how long we live, for we never cease to stand like curious children before the great mystery into which we were born. Here I think he speaks of the sense of aliveness and connection that comes out of the experience of awe and wonder. From Einstein, I'm going to move to Matthew Fox, a theologian. And Fox says this, We are being given a new creation story, a new creation theory from science itself, a new cosmology about how our species got here, how this planet got here. No one can hear the story without being filled with awe and wonder. To hear that all the elements of our bodies were birthed by a supernova explosion five and a half billion years ago, which unites us with all the elements in the universe is awesome. To hear that in the first seconds of the fireball, decisions were made 18 billion years ago on our behalf, that the temperature of the fireball had to be within one degree of what it was for this planet to evolve is awesome. And that, and that is how it happened. When you hear these stories tumbling out of the mouths of scientists, it is no wonder that they are leading the way to mysticism today. I hear the echo of Julian of Norwich in the 15th century, who said, we have been loved from before the beginning. And he goes on to say, we have anthropocentrized falling in love. We think it is something you do to find a mate for the rest of your life. But it is much more than that. We could fall in love with the galaxies. We could fall in love with species of wildflowers. We could fall in love 
with fishes and plants, trees, animals, and birds, and with people. This capacity for being in love has no limit, and all of it is about experiencing blessing. Um, Next, a piece from a philosopher, David Abram, having to look both ways, uh, in his book, Spell of the Sensuous. This is a story about living on Long Island in the 1980s. In the autumn of 1985, a strong hurricane ripped across suburban Long Island, where I was then living as a student. For several days afterward, much of the populace was without electricity. Power lines were down, telephone lines broken, and roads were strewn with toppled trees. People had to walk to their jobs and to whatever shop was supposed to open. We began encountering each other on the streets, in person, instead of by telephone. In the absence of automobiles and their loud engines, the rhythms of crickets and birdsong became clearly audible. Flocks were migrating south for the winter, and many of us found ourselves simply listening with new and childlike curiosity to the ripples of song in the still-standing trees and the fields, and at night the sky was studded with stars. Many children, their eyes no longer blocked by the glare of house lights and street lamps, saw the Milky Way for the first time and were astonished. Though the first few days and nights, our town became a community aware of its place in an encompassing cosmos. Even our noses seemed to come awake, the fresh smells from the ocean somehow more vibrant and salty. The breakdown of our technologies had forced a return to our senses, and hence to the natural landscape in which those senses are so profoundly embedded. We suddenly found ourselves inhabiting a sensuous world that had been waiting for years at the very fringe of our awareness, an intimate terrain infused with birdsong, salt spray, and the light of stars. Okay, the sense of awe and wonder in nature. It, um, it brings a sense of aliveness and connection um, with our natural world. I'd like, I would next like to read a few passages about Earth as our primary healer. And the first one is from a poet named Nancy Wood. Um, in this poem, she talks about the comfort um, we can seek in wild things and, and a source of um, nature also being a source of emotional cleansing and healing. My help is in the mountain, where I take myself to heal the earthly wounds that people give to me. I find a rock with sun on it, and a stream where the water runs gentle, and the trees which one by one give me company. So must I stay for a long time, until I have grown from the rock, and the stream is running through me, and I cannot tell myself from one tall tree then I know that nothing touches me, nor makes me run away. My help is in the mountain that I take away with me. Earth, cure me. Earth, receive my woe. Rock, strengthen me. Rock, receive my weakness. Rain, wash my sadness away. Rain, receive my doubt. Sun, make sweet my song. Sun, receive the anger from my heart. Another section on the healing uh, qualities of nature is from Wendell Berry. When despair for the world grows in me and I wake in the night at the least sound in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water 
and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. And uh, next, a couple of selections from Stillness Speaks by Eckhart Tolle. If you've been watching Oprah, you know who Eckhart Tolle is. <laughs> okay, in this Stillness Speaks, um, he has a chapter of readings specifically on nature, and I've chosen two or three of them. Depend on the healing qualities. We depend on nature not only for our physical survival, we also need nature to show us the way home, the way out of the prison of our own minds. We got lost in doing, thinking, remembering, anticipating, lost in a maze of complexity and a world of problems. We've forgotten what rocks, plants, and animals still know. We have forgotten how to be, to be still to be ourselves, to be where life is, here and now. To bring your attention to a stone, a tree, or an animal does not mean to think about it, but simply to perceive it, to hold it in your awareness. Something of its essence then transmits itself to you. You can sense how still it is, and in doing so, the same stillness arises within you. You sense how deeply it rests in being, completely at one with what it is and where it is. In realizing this, you too come to a place of rest deep within yourself. Bring awareness to the many subtle sounds of nature, the rustling of leaves in the wind, raindrops falling, the humming of an insect, the first bird song at dawn. Give yourself completely to the act of listening. Beyond the sounds, there is something greater, a sacredness that cannot be understood through thought. Actually, I was going to end with two invocations. The first one by a, a Native American uh, chief named Manitonquat. Hear, O humankind, the prayer of my heart. For are we not one? Have we not one desire to heal our Mother Earth and bind her wounds? To hear again from dark forests and flashing rivers the varied, ever-changing song of creation? O oh, humankind, are we not all brothers and sisters? Are we not the grandchildren of the great mystery? Do we not all want to love and be loved, to work and to play, to sing and dance together? But we live with fear, fear that is hate, fear that is mistrust, envy, greed, vanity, fear that is ambition, competition, aggression, fear that is loneliness, anger, bitterness, cruelty. And yet fear is only twisted love, love turned back on itself, love that was denied, love that was rejected. And love, love is life, creation, seed and leaf and blossom and fruit. Love is growth and search and reach and touch and dance. Love is nurture and succor and feed and pleasure. Love is pleasuring ourselves, pleasuring each other. Love is life believing in itself. And life, life is the sacred mystery singing to itself, dancing to its drum, telling tales, improvising, playing. And we are all that spirit, our stories all but one cosmic story, that we are love indeed. That perfect love in me seeks the love in you. And if our eyes could ever meet without fear, we would recognize each other and rejoice. For love is life 
believing in itself. And finally, one short prayer. Mother, Father, God, universal power, remind us daily of the sanctity of all life. Touch our hearts with the glorious oneness of all creation as we strive to respect all the living beings on this planet. Penetrate our souls with the beauty of this earth as we attune ourselves to the rhythm and flow of the seasons. Awaken our minds with the knowledge to achieve a world in perfect harmony and grant us the wisdom to realize that we can have heaven on earth. Hear me okay? Okay. The first passage is from the introduction of another book by Brian Swim called The Hidden Heart of the Cosmos. And this is the first reading is just from the, uh, which is going to summarize some of what we've just been talking about. And the, the introduction is called The Way of Cosmology. The really surprising thing is that the news of the birthplace of the universe was always here. I mean that for as long as there have been humans on Earth, there has always been this news of the universe's birthplace showering us day and night. This must be a central facet of human existence, to have the truth right in front of us and yet be unable to see it or recognize it. In the case of the origin of the cosmos, the news is carried by particles of light, photons. And these particles have been here since the beginning. The problem is that the photons are too dim to be seen by the unassisted human eye. Just think of how many humans since the beginning of history wandered around, bathed in the news of the origin of the universe, all of them simply unable to respond to what was quite literally right there before them. The entire scientific enterprise can be characterized as the development of sensitivities and ideas necessary to become more fully aware of what is happening all around us. Seen in this perspective, 
the discovery of the birthplace of the universe is a four million year learning event. I say four million years because though it's difficult to identify where we should mark the beginning of humanity, one way to proceed is to take the origin as the moment when our ancestors first began walking on two legs. Some anthropologists prefer the moment when our ancestors first began using tools in a systematic way around 2.5 million years ago. In any event, one has to stop and wonder over this drama where humans are wandering about, thinking, working, mating, suffering, even for millions of years. And throughout every moment of that long journey, we have been suffused with the light from the beginning of time. The gift of the scientific venture is the capacity to see what was here all along. And the summary understanding achieved by this long process of inquiry can be stated so simply. The birthplace of the universe, where existence first sprang forth, is 15 billion light years from the Earth. Most physicists regard this discovery of the birthplace of the universe as the most significant of the 20th century. It was an enormously complex task involving thousands and ultimately millions of scientists. It was only by their careful and painstaking investigation of the universe, collecting data, developing new mathematical languages, debating the many interpretations, that the knowledge of the birthplace was finally secured. In this exploration of the cosmic center, transmission of information concerning the discoveries of modern science is, of course, a basic aim. But the greater challenge is to identify the meanings such discoveries have for human existence. These notes, meaning this book, are rooted in a single central conviction concerning our discovery of the birthplace of the universe, a conviction I will state baldly here and will return to throughout. 400 years of modern science now reach a culminating moment with the discovery of the universe's birthplace. Certainly, science's eruption in the 16th century was destructive, not only of the European worldview, but of every traditional worldview with which scientists had contact. But that destructive phase is now ending, and an integrative period begins. Even though science's violent rejection of every cultural and tribal tradition has been deleterious in the extreme, and even though one can appreciate the vehemence with which fundamentalist religions around the planet reject any compromise with modern scientific secular culture, the opportunity of our time is to integrate science's understanding of the universe with more ancient intuitions concerning the meaning and destiny of the human. The promise of this work is that through such an enterprise, the human species as a whole will begin to embrace a common meaning and a coherent program of action. One way to identify the significance of what is taking place is to say that science now enters its wisdom phase. This presentation on the new cosmology is part of our contemporary exploration of the wisdom within the great discoveries of the scientific enterprise as a whole. We are challenged here with understanding the significance of the human enterprise within an evolving universe. Upon our success in meeting this challenge rests the vitality of so much of the Earth community, including the quality of life all future children will enjoy. That was Brian Swim, passionate guy. Tried to read it passionately. This is another uh, reading that uh, talks about consumerism. And I want to juxtapose this reading with what you just heard, this evolving universe and the, the, and the, uh, the sacred quality of the universe and, and how we're an integral part of that as reflected in the previous readings. The fact that consumerism has become the dominant world faith is largely invisible to us. So it is helpful to understand clearly that to hand our children over to the consumer culture is to place them in the care of the planet's most sophisticated religious preachers. If those bizarre cults we read about in the papers use even one-tenth of one percent of the dazzling deceit of our advertisers, they would be hounded by the Federal Justice Department and thrown into jail straight away. But in American and European and Japanese society, and increasingly everywhere else, we are so blinded by the all-encompassing propaganda, we never think to confront the advertisers and demand they cease. On the contrary, as if cult members ourselves, we pay them lucrative salaries and hand over our children in the bargain. The second reason for bringing up the advertisement's hold on us has to do with my fundamental aim in presenting the new cosmology. If we come to an awareness of the way in which the materialism of the advertisement is our culture's primary way for shaping our children, and if we find this unacceptable, 
we are left with the task of inventing new ways of introducing our children and our teenagers and our young adults and our middle-aged adults and our older adults to the universe. These notes on the new cosmology are grounded in our contemporary understanding of the universe and nourished by our most ancient spiritual convictions concerning its meaning. These notes are a first step out of the religion of consumerism and into a way of life based upon the conviction that we live within a sacred universe. You don't have to clap for Brian, but he's really good. Okay, here's a, another visual prop. My deceased wife had left that in there. It was nice to have a great or things like that. This is, uh, a, this is from the book called The Great Work, Our Way Into the Future. Highly recommend it. This is a classic book by a guy whose vision is so encompassing that you can't read this book without coming away feeling like, whoa, I better get involved in the great work and do my part. And the great work being the transition from what Tom, what Thomas Berry calls the transition from a hope, what we're evolving into a technozoic era. You know, we're, we're living in the end of the Cenozoic era from the geological perspective, the evolution of the planet, Earth. He'd like for us to move into an ecozoic era, where ecology is the metaphor that uh, integrates all of our, all forms of life into a, a presence. Another thing he often says is, the universe is not a collection of objects, it's a communion of subjects. Okay, this is the, just from the introduction. Human presence on the planet Earth in the opening years of the 21st century is the subject of this book. We need to understand where we are and how we got here. Once we are clear on these issues, we can move forward with our historical destiny to create a mutually enhancing mode of human dwelling on the planet Earth. Just now, we seem to be expecting one wonderful to be attained through an ever greater dedication to our sciences, technologies, and commercial projects. In the process, however, we are causing immense ruin in the world around us. We might begin to think about our present life situation by reflecting for a moment on the wonder of Earth, how it came to be the garden planet of the universe, and what might be our human role in this context. To appreciate our immediate situation, we might also develop a new intimacy with the North American continent, for we need the guidance and support of this continent as we find our way into the future. The most basic and most disturbing commitment of the original European settlers was to conquer this continent and reduce it to human use. Because the exaltation of the human and the subjugation of the natural have been so excessive, we need to understand how the human community and the living forms of Earth might now become a life-giving presence to each other. We have already shaped the critical understanding and the appropriate technologies that can assist in establishing a beneficial human presence with the other components of this continent and also with the one great Earth community. We need only see that our human technologies are coherent with the ever-renewing technologies of the planet itself. In, in resource and fulfilling and fulfillment of this task is the guidance of the indigenous peoples of this continent, for they have understood better than we have understood the integral relations of humans with this continent and with the entire natural world. In an earlier period, we have been profoundly concerned with divine human relations. In more recent centuries, we've been concerned with interhuman relations. Our future destiny rests even more decisively on our capacity for intimacy and our human-earth relationships. Of the institutions that should be guiding us into a viable future, the university, including Ohio State, has a special place because it teaches all those professions that control the human endeavor. In recent centuries, the universities have supported an exploitation of the earth by their teaching in the various professions, in the sciences, in engineering, law, education, my area, and economics. Only in literature, poetry, music, art, and occasionally in religion and the biological sciences has the natural world received the care that it deserves. Our educational institutions need to see their purpose not as training personnel for the earth, 
but as guiding students toward an intimate relationship with the earth. For it is the planet itself that brings us into being, sustains us in life, and delights us with its wonders. In this context, we might consider the intellectual, political, and economic orientations that will enable us to fulfill the historical assignment before us, to establish a more viable way into the future. As in creating some significant work, the artist first experiences something akin to dream awareness that becomes clarified in the creative process itself. So we must first have a vision of the future sufficiently entrancing that it will sustain us in the transformation of the human project that is now in process. Such an entrancing vision we propose here as the ecozoic era, the period when humans would become a mutually beneficial presence on the earth. That future can exist only when we understand the universe as composed of subjects to be communed with, not as objects to be exploited. Use, as our primary relationship with the planet, must be abandoned. While there are critical issues providing food, food, shelter, and livelihood to vast numbers of peoples, these issues themselves ultimately depend on our capacity to sustain the natural world so that the natural world can sustain us. All our sciences and technologies and all our social institutions become dysfunctional if the natural life system seeks to function. Intimacy with the planet and its wonder and beauty and the full depth of its meaning is what enables an integral human relationship with the planet to function. It is the only possibility for humans to attain their true flourishing while honoring the other modes of earthly being. The fulfillment of the earth community is to be caught up in the grandeur of existence itself and in admiration of those mysterious powers whence all this has emerged. Nourishment of both the outer body and the inner spirit will be achieved in intimate association with each other or not at all. That we can now understand and work toward this fulfillment is the challenging future that opens up before us in these early years of the 21st century. That's just a little prelude. How much time do I have? Over 10, okay. I'm going to do a, a quick reading from, uh, from um, Thomas Berry. The fourfold wisdom. This is a, he has chapters that deal with reinventing the human. Uh, he has wonderful uh, uh, text here regarding all aspects of what I was just in the very beginning, the preface, introductory kind of comments. This is from chapter 16, and just the first couple of paragraphs of the fourfold wisdom. And we, you know, how are we going to get there? He's got many answers. Uh, but uh, in these opening years of the 21st century, as the human community experiences a rather difficult situation in its relation with the natural world, we might reflect that a fourfold wisdom is available to guide us into the future. The wisdom of indigenous peoples, the wisdom of women, the wisdom of the classical traditions, and the wisdom of science. We need to consider these wisdom traditions in terms of their distinctive functioning, in the historical periods of their fluorescence, nice word, and in their common support for the emerging age when humans will be a mutually enhancing presence on the earth. Indigenous wisdom, which extends far back into the Paleolithic period, survives even into the present among the 200 million indigenous peoples. The wisdom of women, which flourished throughout the Neolithic period, is now experiencing a reassertion of itself in a new form. The wisdom of the urban classical literate traditions had its beginning some 5,000 years ago and was the most powerful force in human cultural formation until it was challenged by the scientific tradition of more recent times. Science as a wisdom tradition is only in its beginning phase, even though scientific knowledge has advanced with amazing success ever since the 16th century. He goes on to elaborate on each of those. And since I think I have enough time to read a little bit more from my favorite guru. Uh, this is one paragraph, a pregnant paragraph, in the, in the chapter called Reinventing the Human, which may seem audacious, but we might describe the challenge before us by the following sentence. The historical mission of our times is to reinvent the human at the species level with critical reflection 
within the community of life systems in a time developmental context, that evolution thing, by means of story and shared dream experience. Now he, I'm not going to read this whole chapter, but he goes into, uh, I'll read a, a few selections where he, uh, uh, here's one comment when he says we need to, need to do it in the context of critical reflection. We need the art of intimate communion with, as well as technical knowledge of the various components of the natural world. We insist on the need for critical reflection as we enter the ecological age in order to avoid a romantic attraction to the natural world that would not meet the urgencies of what we are about. The natural world is violent and dangerous, as well as serene and benign. Our intimacies with the natural world must not conceal the fact that we are engaged in a constant struggle with natural forces. Life has its bitter and burdensome aspects at all levels, yet its total effect is to strengthen the inner substance of the living world and provide the never-ending excitement of a grand adventure. Okay, um, he also, this is a little, little tough to get, but I'm gonna read a little bit of it. The final aspect of our statement concerning the ethical imperatives of our time is by means of the shared dream experience. And what's that, what's this about? The creative process, whether in the human or the cosmological order, is too mysterious for easy explanation. Yet we all have experience of creative activity. Since human processes involve much trial and error, with only occasional success at any high level of distinction, we may well believe that the cosmological process has also passed through a vast period of experimentation in order to achieve the ordered processes of our present universe. In both instances, something is perceived in a dim and uncertain manner, something radiant with meaning that draws us on to further clarification of our understanding and of our activity. This process can be described in many ways as a groping or a feeling or imaginative process. The most appropriate way of describing this process seems to be that of dream realization. The universe seems to be the fulfillment of something so highly imaginative and so overwhelming that it must have been dreamed into existence. Chuang Tzu's waking up, not sure whether he's a butterfly. <laughs> but if the dream is creative, we must also recognize that few things are so destructive as a dream or, or entrancement that has lost the integrity of its meaning and entered an exaggerated and destructive manifestation. This has happened often enough with political ideologies and religious visionaries. Yet there is no dream or entrancement in the history of the earth that has wrought the destruction that is taking place in the entrancement with industrial civilization. Such entrancement must be considered as a profound cultural disorientation. It can be dealt with only by a corresponding deep cultural therapy. Such is our present situation. We are involved not simply with an ethical issue, but with a disturbance sanctioned by the very structures of the culture itself in its present phase. The governing dream of the 20th century appears as a kind of ultimate manifestation of that deep inner rage of Western society against this earthly condition as a vital member of the life community. As with the goose that laid the golden egg, so the earth is assaulted in the main effort to possess not simply the magnificent fruits of the earth, but the power itself, whereby these splendors have emerged. At such a moment, a new revelatory experience, a phrase that Thomas Berry loves, is needed, an experience wherein human consciousness awakens to the grandeur and sacred quality of the earth process. This awakening is our human participation in the dream of the earth. He also wrote a book called The Dream of the Earth. The awakening uh, is our human participation in the dream of the earth, the dream that is carried in its integrity, not in any of earth's cultural expressions, but in its depths of our genetic coding. Therein, the earth functions at a deep, at a depth beyond our capacity for active thought. We can't grasp that depth. We're learning. We can only be sensitized to what is being revealed to us. We probably have not had such participation in the dream of the earth 
since earlier shamanic times. But therein lies our hope for the future, for ourselves and for the entire Earth community. So, do I have time for any more reading? Is it over? You know. Hmm? Not in any hurry. Okay, uh, I'm going to read. Uh, well, I'll, I'll read a poem from uh, uh, Gary Snyder, who's who's a uh, a living example of uh, of a great poet, an ecological poet, uh, who's uh, you just can't say enough things about Gary Snyder, and he's still with us. I don't know how old he is now, but he's bit, quite a bit older than I am, and uh, he has. Uh, uh, written many books. He's one of the few poets that uh, actually can earn a little living and live simply from his books. And uh, this is called Prayer for the Great Family. You can imagine the great family is not unlike the universe story we've been talking about. Gratitude to Mother Earth, sailing through night and day, and to her soil, rich, rare, and sweet. In our minds, so be it. Gratitude to plants, the sun-facing, light-changing, leaf and fine root hairs, standing still through wind and rain. Their dance is in the flowing spiral drain. In our minds, so be it. Gratitude to air, bearing the, soft, bearing the soaring swift and the silent owl at dawn. Breath of our song, clear spirit breeze, in our minds, so be it. Gratitude to wild beings, our brothers, teaching secrets, freedoms, and ways, who share with us their milk, self-complete, brave, and aware, in our minds, so be it. Gratitude to water, clouds, lakes, rivers, glaciers, holding or releasing streaming through all our bodies, salty seas. In our minds, so be it. Gratitude to the sun, blinding pulse, pulsing light through trunks of trees, through mist, warming caves where bears and snakes sleep. He who wakes us, in our minds, so be it. Gratitude to this great sky, who holds billions of stars, and goes yet beyond that, beyond all powers and thoughts, and yet is within us. Grandfather's face, the mind is his life. So be it. Enough? <laughs> I could go on. Uh, okay, I'll do. Uh, yeah, this is a book called Thinking Like a Mountain, which we, you know, once we get it, this all may seem strange compared to the consumer culture. But this, this strangeness is what calls to us. And everybody knows it when you experience it. When you go out in nature, you, you remember you know, what, it really, what things are really about. And that's, what, that's just a measure of the, an indicator of the degree of which we have to change. This is a book called, this is a chapter called Gaia Meditations. Gaia, you know, the hypothesis of uh, uh, that the Earth is a living system you know, that uh, can be treated as alive. And uh, Eco-feminists have picked up on that. Many people have understood that uh, in a spiritual manner as well as a scientific manner. This is, uh, the meditations are by John Seed and Joanna Macy. John Seed's a wonderful human <laughs> musician. Uh, Joanna Macy is a wonderful uh, author and has done a lot of work around rituals that help us what we've done to the planet and help us heal to retrieve what we need in terms of energy and spirit to make the changes we need to make. Okay, so this is Gaia Meditations. What are you? What am I? Intersecting cycles of water, earth, air, and fire. That's what I am, and that's what you are. Water, blood, lymph, mucus, sweat, tears, inner oceans tugged by the moon, Tides within and tides without. Streaming fluids floating our cells, washing and nourishing through endless riverways of gut and vein and capillary. Moisture pouring in and through and out of you, of me, and the vast poem 
of the hydrological cycle. You are that, I am that. Earth, matter made from rock and soil. It too is pulled by the moon as the magma circulates through the planet heart and roots suck molecules into biology. Earth pours through us, replacing each cell in the body every seven years. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, we ingest, incorporate, and excrete the earth. Are made from earth. I am that, you are that. Air, the gaseous realm, the atmosphere, the planet's membrane, the inhale and the exhale, breathing out carbon dioxide to the trees and breathing in their fresh exudations. Oxygen kissing each cell awake, atoms dancing in orderly metabolism, interpenetrating. That dance of the air cycle, breathing the universe in and out again, and what you are is what I am. Fire, fire from our sun that fuels all life, drawing up plants and raising the waters to the sky to fall again, replenishing. The inner furnace of your metabolism burns with the fire of the Big Bang. That first scent, matter, energy spinning through space and time. And the same fire as the lightning that flashed into the primordial soup, catalyzing the birth of organic life. You were there, I was there, for each cell of our bodies has descended in an unbroken chain from that event. Through the desire of atom for molecule, of molecule for cell, of cell for organism. In that spawning of forms, death was born, born simultaneously with sex, before we divided from the plant realm. So in our sexuality, we can feel ancient stirrings that connect us with plant as well as animal life. We come from them in an unbroken chain. Through fish learning to walk the land, feeling scales turning to wings, through the migrations in the ages of ice. We have been but recently in human form. If Earth's whole story were compressed into 24 hours, beginning at midnight, organic life would begin only at 5 p.m. Mammals emerge at 11.30, and from amongst them at only seconds to midnight, our species. In our long planetary journey, we have taken far more ancient forms than these we now wear. Some of these forms we remember in our mother's womb, where vestigial tails and gills grow fins for hands. Countless times in that journey, we died to old forms, let go of old ways, allowing new ones to emerge. But nothing is ever lost. Though forms pass, all returns. Each worn-out cell consumed, recycled, through mosses, leeches, birds of prey. Think to your next death. Will your flesh and bones back, will your flesh, will your flesh and bones back into the cycle? Surrender. Love the plump worms you will become. Longer your ear through the fountain of life. Beholding you, I behold as well all the different creatures that compose you, the mitochondria in the cells, the intestinal bacteria, the life teeming on the surface of the skin, the great symbiosis that is you, the incredible coordination and cooperation of countless beings. You are that too, just as your body is part of a much larger symbiosis, living in wider reciprocities. Be conscious of that give and take when you move among trees, Breathe your pure carbon dioxide to a leaf and sense it breathing fresh oxygen back to you. Countless times in that journey we died to old forms, let go of old ways, allowing new ones to emerge, but nothing is ever lost. Though forms pass, all returns. Remember again and again the old cycles of partnership. Draw, draw on them in this time of trouble. By your very nature and the journey you have made, there is in you deep knowledge of belonging. Draw on it now in this time of fear. You have earth-bred wisdom in your, of your inner existence with all it is. Take courage and power in it now. 
that we may help each other awaken in this time of peril. Thank you all for coming and listening. Thank you, Chuck. And thanks to Ellen and Becky. And special thanks to Marilyn Walker for organizing our readers today and giving us such a beautiful program in celebration of Earth Day, which is, in my opinion, every day. Thank you all. Marilyn is our